how would you live differently if you knew that today is the day that Jesus was going to return? How differently would you feel when you woke up in the morning? How different might your schedule look? How different might you prioritize the things that you do and the places that you went and the conversations that you had? Can you imagine, imagine as your heart was racing with anticipation on what that moment might be like? Can you imagine the way that you might sing out to the Lord as John is leading us in songs? I would guarantee there is not one of you that would be able to stand there silent. Can you imagine the severity with which you would leave, live that day? The seriousness with which you would live that day? Can you imagine the conversations that you would have with your children? The conversations that you would have with your family? The conversations that you would have with your friends? There would be no awkwardness in our evangelism that day. What if you knew it was today? was the day that you would face Jesus. Maybe it's not through his coming, but through your departing. What if you knew that today was the day that cancer, or a heart attack, or a stroke, or a car wreck were going to take you out, and that on this day, you were going to stand before his judgment seat? How different would you live? How different would your thoughts be of Scripture? Would you not devour these words to try to understand what that moment was going to be like? Would you not devour these words to make sure that, that you understood what they said, that they had seeped into your heart and penetrated through the hardness that is there? Would you not plead with God and pray to God? With the urgency and with freshness and with passion... Would you not pray with your family? Would you not ask your, your family to pray for you as you prepared for that moment? This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, and that's exactly what he's going to tell us to do. In 1 Peter, he's going to teach us what the scriptures teach us throughout them, what, what Jesus has been teaching all the way going, and we look into Matthew 24, and we, we can look throughout the New Testament, what Jesus is often teaching us is that we are to live in light of his return, that we are to live in light of our soon departure, that we are to live as those that will soon, soon stand face to face with him. That that moment is coming. And it, one way or the other, it is coming soon for us. So as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to read verses 7 through 11. Would you stand with me as we open God's word together? Starting in verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Peter opens up with a phrase there that, if we're honest about it, usually kind of freaks us out. It, it, for, for many of us, it brings anxiety. For many of us, it brings up frustration. For many of us, it, it causes us to roll our eyes, perhaps even. But Peter opens up in verse 7 by saying, the end is at hand. Now, for most of us, when we hear those words, the image that comes into our minds is the guy, the skinny little man in a suit at the Alabama or Auburn game, wearing the chessboard that says, the end is near, holding a megaphone, telling us all to repent, right? That's kind of the image that comes to our minds. But what Peter is not doing here is Peter is not trying to predict when Jesus' return will be. As a matter of fact, we know that the incarnational Christ himself, while I was here, said, I don't know what day I'm coming back. Those things are a mystery to me. And he's telling us these things on purpose. It's purposeful. And so many people have read these words and thought, well, the apostles just got it wrong. I knew they were just fishermen. I knew they really weren't that smart. And so they tried to make all of these predictions, all of these guesses about when Jesus would return. And Peter here is saying the end is near, that Jesus is coming, and he just got it wrong. That's to miss the point of what Peter is saying. That's not what Peter is saying at all. What Peter is saying is Peter is telling us and he's telling these first century Christians is that one day soon we are going to stand before the king and we better live with some urgency. Our lives better be lived with a degree of severity to them. Our lives better be lived in light of this knowledge that one day soon, whether it's through his coming or through our departing, someday soon we are going to be before him and we are going to answer for our lives and our hearts and our lives had better be ready for that moment. In addition, we have a mission until that moment comes. And we better be urgent about that mission. We better be urgent about going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. You see what many people don't understand is that all of us are living in the end times. Like Peter. Like the first century Christians. Just as Peter could say with the first century Christians that the end is near, all of us can say that too. All of us live in the midst of this already not yet reality. In which the kingdom of Christ has already been secured. Jesus has already secured our victory. Jesus has already secured victory on the cross and through his resurrection. But because of the long-suffering of the Lord, Peter tells us, because of the patience that God has with us, because of the desire that God has that we might repent and turn to him, he has tarried his coming. He has postponed his coming so that we might live, so that we might proclaim his name, so that he might be glorified and treasured among us on the earth, so that we can be with him forever. And so, the kingdom has already been secured. But it has not yet been consummated. It has not yet come fully to bear. But brothers and sisters, that day is coming soon. That day is coming oh so soon. And we live with that knowledge because Jesus has told us. Jesus himself told us. Jesus told us through his apostles. And he told us in a way that is particularly and especially vague, I believe. We see in Matthew 24, he's talking about rumors and rumors, wars and rumors of wars. And he's talking about earthquakes and he's talking about um, all of these different things. And all of them are, are especially vague, aren't they? 
And it's, I believe, so that we might, just like the first century Christians, look outside the world around us and say, wow, these things are happening. Wow, these things are taking place. Wow, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. Wow, Jesus, maybe it's today. Maybe he's coming. All of these things are happening. So that we might continue to live out our lives with urgency as believers. So we might continue to live out our lives faithfully in anticipation, in expectation, in hope. But I think there's a second layer to Peter's statement here. I think the first layer is that Jesus is returning soon, that Jesus is coming back soon, and that his church should prepare herself for that moment. But I think there's a really practical side of this too. I think the other side of it is Peter is, walk, is talking to perhaps the most brutally persecuted Christians in the history of human civilization. Perhaps the most tortured group of people in the history of human civilization. See, Nero is the emperor at Rome at the time. And what Nero needed to do is Nero wanted to build all new buildings. And so what he needed is he needed all the old buildings to go away. And so he burns down Rome. And you know who he uses as a scapegoat? This new upstart movement, the way. The Christians. He blames them. And so society is utterly repulsed by them. And so what they would begin to do is they would take these Christians and they would take them to the Roman Colosseum and they would throw them out there with lions so that they might be devoured. They would take a chair made out of iron and they would put it over a fire until this iron chair was glowing hot. And they would throw Christians down and sit them on this chair until they died. Nero would cover Christians in wax and light them as candles in his garden. And so as Peter is writing to these brothers and sisters that are facing such remarkable persecution that literally around the corner of any day, that literally any moment, they could be swept away or their husband or father could be swept away to face such a horrific death. They are all living with this knowledge. They are all living with this understanding that today may be the end. That today may be my last breath. Today may be the day that I am martyred. The day that I am executed for following and for loving Jesus. And Peter wanted them to be ready. Because one way or another, sooner rather than later, they would stand before the judgment seat. And brothers and sisters, it is the same for us this morning. Sooner rather than later, one way or another, whether it is his, his arrival or our departure, someday soon we will stand before the judgment seat. Are you ready for that moment? Are you ready with that moment? Be honest with yourself this morning. Go past all the, the Sunday school answers. Go past all the stuff written in your Bible. Go past all of the works-based salvation and go to the heart of the matter and look deep inside of your soul and ask yourself, am I ready to face the king? Because there's urgency to the matter. There's urgency to the matter. And so I plead with you. I plead with you. Will you come to him? Don't allow your pride to condemn you any longer. Will you come to him? Don't allow your pride to keep you in the chair another week. Will you come to him? He's coming soon. You're going soon. Will you come to him? For those of you that are Christians, 
We are to live every day as though today is the day that he comes. We are to live every moment as though this is our last. Our life is a vapor. Our life is fleeting. And so there is urgency with which we live. There is urgency with which we share the gospel. There is urgency because we don't know when the long suffering is going to end and Christ is going to return and repentance will be impossible. We don't know. What about your life? What about where you are? And so in light of that, in light of the end being near, in light of our soon standing before the judge, Peter then begins to unpack some of these other things that, that, he, is in, that he is explaining to us, that he is demanding of Christians so that they might be prepared for that moment. And the first thing that he says is, in verse 7, is he says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore, because all of the end things are at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If I, I think if you were going to summarize the thrust of all of 1 Peter, the summary of 1 Peter would be living a life of holiness in the real world. Because the, these early century Christians understood how hard this all was. Yet in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, be holy as I am holy. The Lord tells us that we must aim at holiness to be like him, to be uniquely set apart, pursuing godliness, pursuing anxiously, trying to honor him with the way that we live. But we all know, like Peter know, knew how hard that really is. See, Peter was always the guy that spoke up and said, I will die for you. And then one breath later is denying him, right? Peter is always the guy that says, I'll cut off the God's ear and then I can't be found. I'll be godly and then all of a sudden he's back into the shadow. So Peter understands. Peter understands that we are called to holiness, but that that is quite difficult in the real world. And it's difficult for all of us. It's difficult for all of us as we pursue this life of holiness and we want to live a life of holiness. And yet we find ourselves being swept out by the currents of society. We feel ourselves being swept out away from the Lord towards sin, toward ungodliness. And we end up looking more like the world we're in than the Jesus we model ourselves after. And so what Peter is saying here is he, is he says, be self-controlled, be, be sober-minded. He is saying, as you pursue holiness in the real world, guard your heart. Guard your life. Guard your mind. Bring yourself under discipline. Bring yourself under the leadership of the, of the Spirit. Don't follow after the passions of this world. Don't follow after the struggles of this world. Don't follow after the sin of this world. Don't be swept out with the current. No, stand firm. Guard your heart. Guard your life. Be so. Be. be self-controlled, be sober-minded because Jesus is returning soon. He's coming quickly. Now I think he adds an interesting phrase at the end of that when he says for the sake of your prayers. And I asked myself what that meant and I, and I really spent some time thinking about that. But I think to understand that you really have to know, understand what he's saying in all of chapter 4. In, in the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1 he says since then, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
And he's going to go on, he's going to list a, a number of sins and a number of, of ways that just sinfulness and depravity is manifested through these sinners on earth. And so this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying, I think. He's saying, as you live in the real world, as you pursue holiness in the real world, you're, the, the passions of your heart are going to be intrigued by the sin that you see. The, the sin nature that you have is going to be tempted by all the sin that surrounds you. And it's always going to be luring you and saying, come on, come on, come on. And so he says in verse 1, with that knowledge, arm yourself with holiness. Arm yourself for holiness. Arm yourself. Be ready to fight. Be ready to resist the devil. Be ready to stand against him. Be, be, be arm yourself for the battle that's coming. Arm yourself for the battle that's coming after your mind. Arm yourself for the battle that's coming after your heart. Arm yourself for the battle that's coming after your holiness. How do we arm ourselves? I think that's really what he's getting at the heart of here in verse, verses 7 through 11. First, we arm ourselves with prayer. We arm ourselves with prayer. Prayer is the offensive mechanism of the Christian. Originally in my notes I wrote that, that prayer is the defensive mechanism of the believer. But as I thought about it this morning, as I meditated on it this morning, I don't think that's strong enough. We don't, we don't merely pray in response to difficulty. We, we, we pray in advance of difficulty and knowing that it's coming. Saying, Lord, would you prepare my heart? Lord, would you help me stand firm? Lord, would you secure me in your grip? Lord, would you remind me of your faithfulness? Lord, would you fill my heart with your glory? Would you fill my mind with thoughts about you? And so before we're ever even tempted, we go on offense in prayer, don't we? We go on offense and say, I'm going to make a preemptive strike here. The Lord has given me prayer, and so I'm going to pray and, and arm myself for holiness, arm myself with prayer that the Lord might sustain me and that the Lord might help me persevere. Are you arming yourself with prayer? You know what prayer is? Prayer is the great reminder of our own weakness and of God's proven strength. Prayer is the great reminder of, of our proven weakness. Do I have to convince you that you're weak? Do I have to convince you that you can't figure this out by yourself? Do I have to convince you that, that if you are in the wrong circumstance, at the wrong time, in the wrong place, that you're going to fall? Do I have to convince you that when you're in the stillness of the night and it's just you all by yourself, that you are more prone to sin than you are to godliness? Do I have to convince you that all of you, outside of God's grace and God's will, are capable of anything? No, your weakness is well documented. Your weakness is well proven. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we needed Jesus in the beginning. Because we were too weak. Because we could not bear the weight of our own sin. Because we could not triumph over our sin. And so we needed Jesus to help us in that. Which reminds us that he has proven himself strong. He has proven himself victorious. He has proven himself, not just through the creation of the world, but through the creation of us, through the sustaining of us, through the, sal the salvation for us. Time and time and time again, God has proven himself strong. We have proven ourselves weak. And so in prayer, what are we saying? God, I can't do it. You must. You must. This is the opposite of the advice that you get at the grocery store. If you go to the grocery store 
And you look at the magazines that are there. If you go to Books A Million and find the self-help books that are there, what all of them say is all of them tell you to look deeper within yourself. All of them tell you to look more deeply into the mirror, to find the true you so that you might find the strength to overcome what is today, to, to think positive thoughts, to think happy thoughts. And if you think them, they will happen. Let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, has that worked for you? Has that worked for you? What Peter tells us to do is the complete opposite. Peter says, stop trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Stop looking deeply within yourself. All you're going to find as you explore the depths of your heart is the depths of your own weakness. So look outside of yourself to the Lord. Look to the one who has proven himself faithful. Look to the one who has proven himself strong. Go on offense in prayer. Pray to the Lord so that you might be sustained in such a time. Pray to the Lord so that even as you face hostility in the culture, even as you face persecution in the world, even as you face suffering as a Christian, you might press on. You might be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So for the sake of your prayers, guard your heart, arm yourself for holiness. How else do we arm ourselves? We're reminded that it's not just an us battle, it's a we battle. It's not just a you battle, it's an us battle. It's not just, just a, a you battle, it's a, it's a church battle. It's not an individual struggle, it's a corporate struggle. That We're in this together, right? And so like every great general, or every great coach, what does Peter say? He says, remember one another. Remember, you're not in this alone. Remember, you're on a, a grander team here. Remember, you're a part of a larger army here. That as you're arming yourself in prayer, arm yourself by joining together with other brothers and sisters. Joining together with other people that are attempting to pursue holiness like you. That you're going to be completely overwhelmed in the world. But if you can come together. If you can lock arms with other people that are, that are in the same place that you are, if you can lock arms that have the same aim and desire and hunger and thirst for holiness that you have, that you can come together and even in the midst of discouragement, be encouraged. Even in the midst of alleged defeat, you can be reminded of your already secured victory. Because you come together. And so he reminds us of what Jesus told us a few weeks ago in John chapter 13, love one another. Remember? Isn't that what Jesus was telling his disciples so that they would be prepared to live out holiness in the real world? Jesus gathers them all, the way, all around and he says, hey, I'm leaving. I'm departing. I'm going to the cross. And so, like a dad going off to battle, he gathers his family around and he says, look out for one another. Take care of one another. Love one another. Be there for one another. Protect one another. Fight for one another. Feed one another. Clothe one another. Be in, all in with one another. And this is what Peter tells us to do too. One of the ways that we arm ourselves for holiness is to love one another. To be in one another's lives. Which is why I think he says in verse 8, reminded of what Jesus says in John 13, he even starts with above all. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Forgive me, I got dry mouth this morning. TMI, right? Some of you ladies were talking about TMI this morning. But we come there and he says, keep loving one another. Well, let me ask you, what's the hard part of that commandment? What's the hard part of what Peter says right there? 
It's the word keep, isn't it? It's the word, it's when he says, not just love one another, but keep loving one another. There's some depth to that word. There's some depth to that word. Here's what I mean by that. The first thing we understand is, when he says keep, is that the love must already be established. There must have already been a time in which these brothers and sisters said, hey, I'm all in with you and you're all in with me, that we're going to be in this together. And so there was a beginning point. There was a starting point. But that's not really the hard part. The hard part isn't starting. The hard part isn't going. The hard part isn't, isn't worshiping a couple times together. The hard part is to keep on doing it. You see, we live in a, in a society of temporary love, don't we? We live in a society in which we enjoy flings much more than we enjoy marathon marriages. We're much more into sprints than we are into endurance runs. And so we get wrapped up in the fling, and it's exciting, and it's impassioned, and we're all in, and we're anxious. But then, the moment we begin to grow old with one another, the moment that the wrinkles and the warts start to come, the moment that the new wears off and the passion runs thin, that moment happens, and what happens? The fling is over, and we go to pursue it again, and again, and again. I think this is a picture of what happens most often in churches, in the modern church culture. I want you to hear me say that there are times in which the Lord calls you to a new place. I get it. I'm there. It's happened to me. I've, I've been called to a new church before. There are moments in which it is clear that it's time for you to go somewhere new, but usually it's happened after a period of sustained serving, in which the Lord, for a season, works in your heart, or when this Lord moves you physically to a new location. But Peter tells us to keep loving one another. That when we, we come together as a church family, that the idea is that this isn't a fling, No, brothers and sisters, this is a marathon. This is a marriage. There are three relationships that I know of in this earth that we enter into covenants with. We enter into covenants in the new covenant when we come to Christ. And that covenant, we pray to God, lasts forever, as his word tells us. The other covenant that we enter into is marriage. We make vows to one another saying, hey, I'm in this forever. I'm going to keep on loving you regardless. And the third covenant that we enter into in this life is with our church family. We covenant in with one another to say, hey, I'm I'm all in. I'm going to keep on loving you even when I don't want to, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient. I'm going to keep on loving you. I'm going to run this marathon with you. Even when you get wrinkled, even when the warts come, even when the struggles come, even when the fling is over, I'm going to keep running with you. That's my prayer for us, is that we would be... a collection of believers, a fellowship of believers that would commit ourselves to enter into covenant with one another, to commit ourselves to be with one another for the long haul, through all the wrinkles, through all the warts, that we might grow old together. You see, temporary love doesn't illustrate the gospel. Temporary faithfulness doesn't demonstrate the gospel. It's long-suffering that demonstrates the gospel. It's endurance that demonstrates the gospel. It's even when, when they are unfaithful and you remain faithful. That's what demonstrates the gospel. It's keeping power that demonstrates the gospel. Let the permanence of our church membership, let the permanence of our commitment to the fellowship paint the picture 
of the permanence of the gospel bond that we have in Christ. May our commitment to our fellowship model for our community, our commitment to Christ. Could it be that the world is so turned off to the church because she has seen only temporary love among them? Flings. The kind of stuff that you see at social clubs. No. The gospel demands we go deeper with each other. The gospel demands that we stay more committed to one another. Notice what he says. He says, why? He says, because it covers a multitude of sins. That this type of keeping love, this type of enduring love, covers a multitude of sins. You know what that means? What that doesn't mean, what some people interpret that to mean is that if I can just love my, if I can just love Christians enough that somehow that's going to earn me forgiveness for my sins, that, that that's going to that's cover my multitude of sins. Now we know that the, only the gospel, only Christ's righteousness can cover our multitude of sins. That's not what it's talking about. Here's what it's talking about. Is that this kind of keeping love allows us to love one another through our sin. Through our sin. In other words, here's, here's what this means. There's going to be days in which I absolutely blow it. It happens a lot. I'm going to fail you. I'm going to disappoint you. Perhaps I'm going to hurt you. It's this kind of love that's able to cover over that multitude of sins that I commit toward you. To get through that and to say, I still love you, brother. I'm still all in with you. And guess what? There's going to be days when you do that to me too. There's going to be days in which you let me down and you discourage me and you disappoint me and you hurt me. And it's this love, it's this, this, this keeping love that allows me to, to love you through that time of sin. Love you through that time of discouragement. Love you through that time of hurt. It is only by grace that any fellowship of sinners can hold together. It is only when we forgive one another, it is only when we love one another, not with fling love, but with marathon covenant love that will allow us to endure through this together. And so what I'm calling you to, brothers and sisters, is to dream with me for a little bit here. To dream with me for a little bit. Now I am convinced that I will follow the Lord wherever he would lead me. But I feel almost convinced that the Lord has called me to a generational pastorate here. That this is where I will be. That I will be here to hold, hand this thing over to the next generation. To the next, to our children, and to our grandchildren, and to our great-grandchildren. I'm convinced of that. Can you imagine what that would look like in our community if we all joined in that together? Can you imagine the testimony of our Lord that that would be? If we all said, you know, I'm just in on this thing. I'm just all in here. I'm just going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Let's go, let's come, let's come in together, let's commit that this generation will be a generation of faithfulness. That this generation will be the kind of generation that says, hey, I'm going to love you through your sin. I'm going to love you through your struggles. I'm going to love you in spite of all of the failures. I'm going to love you through this so that everybody else might see Jesus in us. What if we love one another that way? You see, church membership means something to me. It means something to me. The meaning of church membership has eroded in the majority of our churches, but it means something to me, brothers and sisters. It means that I'm laying it on the line, that I'm committed to you, and you're committed to me. It means that there's going to be times in which you need me to encourage you, and there's going to be times when I need you to encourage me. It means that there's going to be times in which we, we laugh together, and times in which we mourn together, times in which we celebrate together. 
There's going to be times in which we just don't like one another very much. But we're just going to continue pursuing on, pressing on with this keeping love. As most of you know, I was about six years that the Lord had called me away to serve in, a different, in two different contexts, in two different churches. Of one, uh, five years at one and one year at one. And I'm convinced that the Lord used those seasons to prepare me to come back here. But while I was away, I would run into you at Winn-Dixie. And you cared about me. And you cared about what was happening in my life. And you would ask about what was happening in my family. And you would, you would tell me reports of things that you had heard in my ministry. That mattered to me. That was significant for me. And it made my heart long to come back. And it made, it made me pray that God would, would open up the door providentially. That would bring us and unite us back together again. And brothers and sisters, that is the picture of church membership. In which even when I'm not pouring into you, you're still pouring into me. Even when I'm not serving you, you're still serving me. That we're all in with one another forever. We're in this thing. We're going to keep on loving one another. And cover a multitude of sins. And Peter tells us, I think, in the next, in verses 9 through 11, kind of how that practically can look, how that kind of tangibly gets worked out in the life of the church. Starting in verse 9, he says what? He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, open up your homes to one another, feed one another, enjoy one another, have friendship with one another, spend time with one another, live life with one another, be involved in one another's communities and, and know what's happening in each other's lives. In verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Here's what I think he's telling us. That everything that you have, every resource that you have, is intended to be stewarded by you, to be managed by you for both the strengthening of the church and the advancement of the kingdom. You notice how he talks about two different types of resources here? In verse 9, he kind of talks about our earthly resources, our, our possessions, our physical resources. He's talking about us opening up our home. So in other words, if God has given me a home, it is a gift to be used by me for the strengthening of the church and the advancing of the kingdom. If God has given me a truck or given me a car, it is for the purpose of strengthening the church and advancing the kingdom. If God has given me a family, it is for the purpose of, of strengthening the church and advancing the kingdom. That everything that we do, if we were to take a, a broad perspective on this thing, all the things that we have are intended to come together for the advancing of the church, or for the strengthening of the kingdom, uh, church and the advancing of the kingdom. And then he gets to verse 10, and he talks not about those physical things, but about spiritual gifts, right? Those things that we learn about in 1 Corinthians 12. Those, those gifts that come and take residence in our lives when the Spirit comes and takes residence in our lives. There are, there are gifts that you have when you, become, when you were saved that you didn't have before. There are things that are in your heart that weren't there before. And they're beautiful and they're spectacular. And what are the purpose of them? The strengthening of the church, the advancing of the kingdom. You see, every resource that you have is both a gift and a tool. It's a gift which should lead you to praise God, to praise Him and to worship Him. The Father that gives good gifts to His children. The, God, the Father that, that gives resources to His children and, and houses to His children and, and cars to His children. The Father that gives you spiritual gifts, gifts of, gifts of, of preaching and teaching and, and serving and all of these other things that we read about. So they're gifts that should lead us to worship. 
But at the same time, they are tools for us to leverage. They are tools for us to use and to expend in this life as an investment in the next life. In other words, all of the gifts that you are gifted are given to you for the purpose of regifting them. Everything that you have, the money that you have, the time that you have, the house that you have, the car that you have, the gift of teaching that you have, the gift of preaching that you have, the gift of serving that you have, the gift of mercy that you have, the gift of singing that you have, all of those gifts are not intended so that you might hoard them like everybody else on earth as those who don't know what happens next, but instead that you might re-gift them, reinvest them for the strengthening of the church and the advancement of the king. And so brothers and sisters, I remind you that he's coming soon. And so if you are called to teach, teach. If you are called to preach, preach. If you're called to the mission field, go. If you're an evangelist, evangelize. If you have a house, open up your home. Do it because he's coming quickly. This is urgent. We don't have long to do this. Do it and do it quickly. I think the most mysterious part of this for us is our spiritual gifts. Most of us can look around our physical gifts and know what they are. Most of us know what our talents are. Most of us know what we have and what we don't have. Spiritual gifts are mystery. And so we, we usually end up doing this, fix, trying to figure this out by trying to take a, a spiritual gifts test, right? And you know what you should do with those? You should burn them. You should use them to light fires in your house because they're garbage. Has anybody ever taken a spiritual gifts test and they, well, praise the Lord, let's go to Africa? Probably not. Probably not. Because they're not worth anything. But because first of all, I love what Peter said here, says here. He says that these are varied graces, right? The spiritual gifts I believe that we have in the scriptures are not exhaustive. They're instead an example list. They're not all the gifts. There may be gifts that you have that God has given you that aren't even listed in 1 Corinthians 12. And you know what? That's all right. But that also means it's not going to be on the test. Because they didn't know about that one. You know how you, should, you, know how you discover your gifts? You discover your gifts through serving. We typically stand back and say, as soon as I can figure out what I do, as soon as I can figure out how I serve, as soon as I can figure out what my gifts are, then I'll serve. How many of you went to college knowing what you wanted to do? How many of you went to as a freshman knowing that you were going to be an aeronautical engineer and ended up being a teacher? And that's good, right? But we all go and think, I'm going to do this, I'm going to transform the world, when really the Lord takes us and providentially uses us in ordinary parts of life, doesn't he? See, there's nothing that teaches you whether or not you're called to be a nurse more than holding a puke bag. Right? There's nothing that tells you whether or not you're called to be a coach or whether you have it to be a coach until you have an 80-hour work week and they're in the elements and you go home and say, I love this. Right? You don't know if that's what you do. You don't know if that's what you're good at until you do it. Brothers and sisters, you don't know what your gifts are because you've never tried to find them. Serve. Serving is the providential mechanism through which God reveals to you what you love to do. Serve. Work. Strengthen the church. Advance the kingdom. Do it. He's coming quickly. You don't have long. Do it. Why do we do it? That's where he lands in verse 11 at the end. And this is where I want to land this morning as we finish our series on defining values. He says, in order that, 
in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why do we do it? Why do I teach? Why do I preach? Why do I open my home? Why is all of that relevant? It is so that the world might glorify Christ more. And so that the Lord might identify God as being the chief treasure of the universe. The only one worthy of us aligning our lives with. So that the world, just a little bit more, might proclaim his glory. And proclaim his goodness. And might know that he is supreme. And he is supreme over everything. It's so that his name might be hallowed. That his name might be glorified and it might come through our faithful lives. The sweeping purpose of all of this, the sweeping purpose of us spending our money and spending our lives and spending our gifts, the sweeping purpose of all of that is so that God might be glorified through it. All of the things that we do here at Iron City land on our final value. Starting with the word loving one another, rolling up our sleeves, dining with sinners, all manifest themselves in the last sweeping value, the sweeping purpose of why we exist, and it is that God might be glorified in all things through us. This morning, brothers and sisters, that's my heart. I pray that today he would reveal to you the areas of unfaithfulness in your life so that you might be faithful in all things. That he might remember, reveal to you the areas of laziness in which you're, you're kind of standing back waiting to get into the game. I pray that he might reveal to some of you that have been visiting with us for a while that church membership is significant and that you would commit to having this keeping love here with us and that you would commit to going deep with us through a multitude of sins because we are so far from perfect here. I pray that if you're not ready for the judgment, If you're not ready for his return, if you're not ready to stand in front of him, that you would repent and that this morning you would come. Let me pray for us.